On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, which, by the way, is National Columnist Day, so, yeah. Anyway, on this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about Tony Musitano, who passed away. He was a a well-known figure in this city for all kinds of reasons. We'll be talking about why it was. We're going to be chatting about a new poll that says leading into the Easter weekend, not because it's leading into the Easter weekend, but the timing of it, church attendance is plummeting over the last 20 years. Why is that? And is there any chance it's ever going to turn around? And is the problem with the Maple Leafs right now and maybe the Raptors the fault of Drake? Is the curse of Drake real? I say yes. We discuss. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Uh, If you were reading the stories, if you heard the stories, listening here on CHML, you would have heard yesterday that Tony Musitano died. Now, he died of natural causes, as we've been told, but you might have, if you weren't really paying that close attention, you might have been excused for wondering because it wasn't all that long ago that it was his nephew, Angelo Musitano, remember that name, who was gunned down in his driveway. You know that story? Of course you do. Uh, And several months later, it was another nephew, Pat Musitano, whose home was shot up. He was okay, but the house took a pounding. Uh, And plus, it wasn't like... Tony Musitano might not have had some enemies. Back in the 1970s, he was convicted for a string of bombings here in town. And then while he was in prison, he was convicted again for plotting the murder of Toronto mobster Dominic Rocco. So uh, this is a guy who was involved. I want to bring in James Dubro, who is an award-winning crime writer. He's an observer of the gangland world and organized crime. Uh, we love having him on. James, thanks for doing this again today. Good, good evening, Scott. How are you? Well, I'm great. Listen, in, in interviews, and I've been reading all the stories about him today, and there's a few excellent obituaries. In fact, Adrian Humphrey's yes. piece in the National Post was spectacular. If anyone wants to really read a, a great taste of this in addition to what you're going to tell us. That but, was very good, that, that obituary. It was very balanced. Well, and like that. when you read this, you get the sense or at least the position is being made that after he got out of jail back in 1990 and got probation and got parole and got out, that he turned his life around completely and he went completely straight and he was on the straight and narrow and that was the end of his mob time. Do you buy that? Well, it's very complicated. Uh, On the face of it, it seems to be the case. I mean, he certainly has argued that very eloquently. I've seen him a number of times arguing that um, and judging from what Adrian and and Peter uh, said in their obituaries, he certainly was trying very hard to keep out of that world. But you have to wonder whether he kept a hand. He obviously was not in in any of the street gang level stuff that he was in in the 70s and 80s when he was even banned from being in Hamilton when he got out of jail. Say a city council. City council had a, 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 what do you call it, a a bylaw almost that they put in place saying, don't come back here. That was first. It is possible that he and his nephew, Ange, who was killed, Possible they tried that they retired, and of course was more recent. Uh, Tony would have been like twenty-five years retired. That part of me keeps saying, and I and I have sources in on the street in Hamilton that tell me that he was uh, very involved in some drug importation. I don't know, uh, but he certainly wasn't on the street level, and he certainly had an incredible personality. Just you know, those wonderful obituaries. Um, but his brother was one of the major gangsters. He was one of the major gangsters. I was around in the 70s and 80s doing television shows and books, and he featured very prominently in everything from extortion to bombings to, to unions. Um, 
he was very, very, very up in the mafia in Hamilton in the 70s and 80s. And not only killing of Dominic Racco, they did it. I mean, he was murdered, and uh, Tony was uh, convicted, along with his brother Dominic, of the murder, and one of his nephews. So it's a, he's a very complex man. If he did turn it around his life around, that's really wonderful. And it has happened. I mean, Bill Bonanno, famously, who we interviewed in Connections, he, he got out of the mob, although he was pulled back in. As the Godfather says, someone's always trying to pull you back in through various schemes later in life. And Michael Francesi is another one that seemed to have got out. I seem because you never really know. Well, There's always something tempting that could happen. Well, let me ask you this. Drugs. Even if he had got out, even if he had cleaned up, if you have the right. last name Musitano and you are the nephew, and I don't know if everyone, and I can't, we don't have time to go into all the family tree, but he's the nephew right. of the guy who was known as the Beast of Delianova. Um, right. He's well, the brother. He, he was great. He grew up in, in, in the mafia. Right. That's the sad thing about a lot of people, you know, particularly in, in the Hamilton mob world, that they grew up, they didn't have a choice, really. Well, they had a choice, but they, they, they were brought up that way. So if, in the Papalia family, uh, Lupino family, and, the, and certainly the Musitano family. So if you, whether he got out, even if he got out, if you yeah. are carrying the name Musitano with all the connections that that has, would that name alone still have carried power within that community? Oh, absolutely, because his nephew, Pat, is one of the leading gangsters still in Hamilton. And, a, and, a, and a somewhat of a mad bomber and arsonist and killer, you know, he was the one that was trying to kill just about everyone and did kill Papalia and Barrelero. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, there's a number of names in Hamilton, not many, instill fear and awe just by the name. Musitano is one of them. Papalia is another one. Lupino is another one. There are a few others, but there are very, very few. And, they, and, uh, to, to get over that, to, to use that, because he had a great sense of humor, so if he, if he used that to, uh, to get away from the dark side and, and, and change things, that's, it's, it's, it's really great, but we don't absolutely know that, and we can't know it. We, I saw him when, he, when, when Angela was killed. He was on playing the bereaved uncle, maybe not playing, maybe he was the bereaved uncle, but, you know, the interviewer didn't even ask him about his own criminal past. You know, uh, I mean, time, time goes by. I get either time goes by, or they didn't really want to know. I guess. It, well, it, they it, didn't it, ask him, and it, he it, just played. He never mentioned it. It complicates the story if suddenly the person who is one of the protagonists of the story is a little more complicated. Mm-hmm. James, one of the things as I was reading these obituaries today and being reminded of the background, um, as I mentioned right off the top when we brought you on here, he was convicted while he was in prison for the bombings that he got in jail originally for, he was convicted of plotting the hit on another mobster. And right. for that, he got a 10-year sentence only that was to run concurrently to what he was already doing. That seemed to me to be really unusual. Was that a soft touch? And if so, why did he get a soft touch? Well, because he had one of the great lawyers, Eddie Greenspan. But on top of that, it was they didn't have a lot of hard evidence. They had some of the hit people and they had some you know, rather vague wiretaps where he talks about getting rid of the person that owed the money and talked about the Volpe hit, uh, and maybe they should do the same thing with the person that owed the money, which was Dominic, but he never outright says on the tapes, you know, I want you to kill Dominic. But according to the police theory for which he was convicted, he initiated the uh, contracts to kill. There were two hit teams that were hired by his brother, Dominic, and, and himself to to affect the hit. Uh, 
And so, and, and both teams got convicted, or parts of them got convicted, although some of them were overturned later. Uh, yeah, I don't know. He served about, what, six years in jail for... Something like that, six or seven, yep. Yeah, for all the bombings and, and the murder. And did he find redemption? <laughs> did he did he uh, actually change? And can you be forgiven? I guess you can. You know, there's that great scene in The Godfather 3, I don't know if you ever saw that one, Yep. where Don Corleone is confessing to the cardinal who later becomes pope uh, to, you know, trying to, well, actually confessing everything and, and being forgiven. But then when he admits to killing his brother, remember he kills Fredo, uh, and uh, the cardinal sort of looks up at heaven. Oh God, I gotta, I gotta give him absolution. <laughs> so you can always—that's the wonderful thing about the Catholic Church. Uh, you can always get absolution, and 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 hopefully he did actually change his life. And, well, well, where where we are now, though. Life. Where we are now, though, and this is this is sort of part of the reason I wanted to really have you on, because right. we had Angelo Musitano, who was killed, obviously, and a yeah. guy who we heard was changing his life. Uh, Pat is still around, but now Tony is gone. Are we, are we getting to the end of the Hamilton Mafia time? Because it's always, for many, 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 many years, it's been the case. Are, is that fading away now in this city? Well, I... It's tempting to say that. Uh, certainly, and the Papalia family is is is, is, is certainly not around anymore. Uh, but then there's the Violis, uh, a nice old mob family, and the and the two sons of Paula Violi are recently convicted of major crimes involved in a lot of different uh, andrangheta type uh, activity, including drug importation, fentanyl, what have you. Uh, certainly, Lapinos are still around. We had a Lapino murdered recently. Uh, who supposedly wasn't involved in crime, but the hitman might have confused him with his father because they lived in the same house. I would, yeah, there is a dying off just naturally through time. You know, uh, I mean, Tony Musitano, when he was premier gangster, 70s and 80s, was old school, you know. Power in the street, you know, in your face, bomb people, kill them. You know, uh, nowadays it's, you try to focus on not so much the street activity, but bringing in a good score of drugs. Uh, you don't have to be a power on the street to, to be a successful gangster. And there are a lot of Andrangheta cells in the Hamilton area, uh, in Greater Toronto area, at least a dozen. Uh, some more recent, some, some old, but definitely the Musitanos, Lapinos, Violis represent the old school, which is dying off. And it does seem that it's different because once upon a time, and maybe this is just a Hollywood thing, so forgive me if it is, but it seems like there was a an era, maybe a long era, of the the guys, especially the bosses, they loved being known, they loved being seen, they loved that Absolutely. reputation. Now it seems, correct me if I'm wrong, that you would be very happy just to be in the background and really not have all that many people know much about you. That's true. The, the, the smarter ones are very much like that. You wouldn't, you'd be very surprised if you knew who... Some of the leaders of some of the Andrangheta cells were in the Vaughan Hamilton area. These are mostly considered legitimate businessmen. They lead double lives, you know, almost like a serial killer. Uh, you'd be surprised, and and that's because they don't want the attention. They don't want the power from the street. They don't want, they don't want people to fear them necessarily. They just want to make money, good money, through various, usually drug activities. But uh, you're quite right. There there isn't that sense like Johnny Papalia, you know, an enforce the enforcer. Where uh, you were the big man in town. Yeah, yeah. And Pat Lusitano is still like that, or was until recently. Now he's 
he's been very quiet with his bulletproof car. Uh, he doesn't seem to have a long, uh, long trajectory left of, of criminal life, but he's still, I understand, still bringing in cocaine and other things. He still has a, a crew around him, amazingly. It is. Uh, it, it seems as though, as I say, when Tony Musitano went, it seems as though the um, the, the the name. Certainly, we're getting to the end of the name, maybe. But uh, maybe. Uh, j- but we'll see who shows up at the funeral. It shouldn't be a mob funeral at all. You know, he ran a dry cleaning shop. Right. Where he didn't. Where he didn't launder money. He said. <laughs> I thought that was one of his good jokes. James Dubrow. He did. James Dubrow, great crime writer. You can read him. Uh, and by the way, go again, the Adrian Humphreys piece in the National Post, particularly Peter Edwards in the Toronto Star. Excellent obituaries yeah. if you want to read more about Tony Musitano. Uh, James, thanks for doing this as always. All right. Thank you, Scott. Have a good Easter. You as well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is also, as you certainly know, Easter weekend. Some of you know that because you celebrate Easter in a big way. Some of you know that just because you get a day off work or two. Or, depending where you work, maybe three, four, five, I don't know. If you're in a really friendly business environment. Uh, For some of you, it is the one time a year, maybe two if you go on Christmas, but the one time a year that you go to church. Well, a new study by Gallup says church membership has dropped sharply over the past 20 years. In 1976, 70% of Americans attended church regularly. Uh, By the 1990s, that had dropped to 68%. And then today... It is at 50%. Big drop. And now those are American numbers, but nonetheless, let me bring in my guest. Dr. David Haskell is an associate professor of religion and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. He joins me now. Dr. Haskell, thanks for doing this today. Uh, It's a pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, These numbers, as I mentioned a moment ago, these numbers are U.S. numbers. Any reason to think that they would be vastly different here? Uh, No, it's probably worse here in in Canada. Uh, And I say probably, but I, I know it is. Um, in fact, if you look at some of the recent data that came out of um, Ipsos Public Affairs, I'm thinking back to not too long ago, just 2017, it would appear that Christians, practicing Christians, have now fallen into, into the minority. There's only about 48% of Canadians who now say that they identify as Christian, which is pretty surprising given that uh, even 2011, 68% were, were still identifying as Christians, but now we're down to the 48%. Uh, let me, before we get into that, let me just ask you one kind of weird question that dawned on me today. If so many people no longer identify with a church, with a religious group, as a Christian, whatever, why do so many people then go to church on Easter? Well, I think it's just something that they do in terms of uh, a rite of passage. Um, it's something that marks the time. Like all of us, whenever you look at why a ritual is done, I mean, you can have the spiritual significance, but you can also have the cultural significance. And uh, we do these things to remember, you know, when you, when you do something like you go on a vacation and you go to a new spot, you remember it better than if you stayed home because home all blends in together. And similarly, when you go and mark the time in a church, it reminds you, well, the season has passed. It's, it's spring now. So very often it's a, it's sort of, it's a ritual that ingrains where we are uh, in time. So let's go back to what you just said then, that this, is, uh, that this has been happening. Why has it been happening? Why have these numbers then been dropping so dramatically? Well, it's funny, you know, uh, some colleagues and I just uh, two or three years ago, we launched a, a massive research study that looked at church decline in Canada. And we were able to determine that uh, a lot of it has to do with the supply side. And by what, do, that, what does that mean? Yeah. 
yeah, anybody who knows anything about businesses knows that it could either be demand or supply that is giving you the problem for your product. So maybe if you're, if you're producing buggy whips, uh, there's just not the demand out there. So you might have the best buggy whips, but uh, if there's just no demand, it's not going to happen. The other side is maybe you create a terrible product. That's the supply side. And what we found in our study is that many people were, were reporting that they had an interest in religion, in Christianity in particular. We were looking at churches, uh, but they just weren't finding that the churches were meeting their needs in terms of what they thought would be a valuable or worthwhile experience. So it's, it's really... And there is demand, a problem with demand, but let's just focus on the supply side for a minute. There is a a problem within the churches themselves, the way they are running their services, and they they need to figure out a new innovative strategy. And now, before people think, oh, well, they have to become more liberal, that is exactly what we didn't find. We found that the, the only churches that actually were growing were the ones that were sticking closest the traditional message of Christianity with all the uh, mystical God stuff and prayers answered and God being part of your life. Uh, so those were the growing churches. But they also, in their, in their services, were more innovative. They were able to use video more often. Uh, they often did it like a talk show. So the, the innovative services that are also more traditional in their core message seem to be doing better, but not a lot of churches are doing that. But that's a, that sounds like a difficult thing for them to do. If you're trying to keep the message exactly the same or stable and change everything else around it, it seems like it's very easy to then suddenly start changing the message. Yeah. Uh, well, this is what Christianity has done since its inception. And now I won't go all the way back 2,000 years, but if you look at uh, the, the largest group to grow in the 1800s were the Methodists. And the reason that they grew was they were innovative. Their message was completely traditional Christianity. But what they decided to do was they took bar songs, songs that were sung in pubs, and then they put Christian lyrics to it. A guy named Charles Wesley did that. John Wesley, who was the main preacher in the movement, what he did, he started to to go on horseback and go to where the people were, and he would preach in fields and in barns and in, in any place where they'd have them. So those innovations really made a difference. If you go into the late 1800s, uh, you see the Salvation Army. It implements brass bands, which for the time was really innovative, and they brought in tons of people. So Christianity has always been pretty good at innovation. It's just we're at a low period in terms of what the next innovation will be. So is it then, if you were starting a church and you were trying to buck the trend, is it you want to put on the biggest show possible? I think that... That's not necessarily going to do the trick because let's say you have this great rock band and all these videos, but if your core message isn't related to, I guess what we'd call the traditional tenets of the faith, you're probably not going to do well. All of our data showed that uh, there were churches that were doing the innovative stuff, but they lacked that core message. In fact, we called those churches the, the coconut churches because they or, yeah, well, I won't go into that because it's too long an explanation, <laughs> but I'll just say that it, it didn't work. You actually had to have the two things, the innovation plus the, the core message of traditional Christianity. And David, I, I think the other part about this is, I mean, you've mentioned a number of things, but it seems to me that this has to be somewhat predictable for another reason as well, and that is that we have 
tried as a culture, it seems, to secularize the public square, universities, schools, uh, city city halls. Religion has been basically purged from the culture. And if you have young a young generation that's coming up that has no exposure to this, why would they naturally find their way into a church? You have hit the nail on the head, Scott. You should be a social scientist. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, I, I, am, I yeah. am not. I'll leave that to you and the other bright people. Well, uh, we talked a little bit about how supply can affect uh, people going to church or not, but the other side of that is the demand, and we have seen um, a decrease in demand, and it's probably mainly due to stigmatization, and th- it could be through media or academia, but religion gets a really bad rap now, and it's often because religion is presented as a monolith, and, uh, well, for example, uh, if you asked young people, and Ipsos did, uh, do they think that religion does more harm than good? And the majority now say that they feel religion does more harm than good. And as a social scientist who studies religion, I can tell you that uh, Christians in Canada, for example, they give three times the amount to charity uh, in terms of their volunteering. They double what average Canadians do, and then those who are volunteering give 40% more hours. So there's this incredible social benefit that uh, Christians in particular in Canada bring to our communities, but that message isn't getting out. Instead, it's, uh, it's very much about, well, things that would stigmatize. And, and I, I, I don't want to say that there aren't things going wrong. I mean, we can think of the, the Catholic Church scandal that, uh, where there's been pedophilia and problems there. And um, within the evangelical community, there's been lots of scandals related to finances. But these things get heightened, or they, they resonate more because they get repeated more, and then you get this false equivalency where, where everything gets painted with the, the same brush. So I think that things like that are dampening the, the desire or the demand for religion. But if people would really know what was truly going on, it might help religion out. But not every kid, and I'm talking, when I say kid, I mean uh, up to what, 15, 16, 17 years old, not every kid is an analytical thinker. And so even though some of these things are going on, where is that information coming from to the kids to convince them that religion is doing more evil than good? Uh, Mostly from the the media and the education system now. Um, Certainly within universities, when you look at the studies, uh, there was a, a study that was just done by uh, a guy at Crandall University, Sam Reimer, and uh, he found that conservative Christians, or just what we'd call practicing Christians, are the single greatest group that are prejudiced against by university professors. So we can assume that they might be saying some nasty things in their classrooms, and even though these kids are in university, they're still able to be influenced, and so that, that can play a part of it. Uh, but let, let's talk about the other happier side. I mean, if somebody really wanted their kid, uh, let's say we had some parents who did go to church and, and they considered themselves practicing Protestants or Catholics, and they say, what can I do to make sure that my kid stays in, in the faith? Well, it's pretty simple. I mean, sociology shows us that uh, if you want your kid to stay in the faith, then you read the Bible to them, you pray with them, and then you somehow make sure that they attend a youth group. And if the parents themselves are practicing the faith, uh, the, best, the best number we could give is about 80% of kids who are raised in that kind of family are going to stay in the faith. So it's not really—some uh, of this might be a problem of parents just not uh, 
not keeping up with their own practice at home. I mean, if, the, if it was something that was important to them, then uh, they actually have quite a bit of influence. So w- when you look at these numbers, though, in the last 20 years, dropping something like 20% or so, some would look at that and say, well, this is a sign of an inevitable slide to complete disappearance. Do you buy that? No, I, I mean, the death of Christianity in particular has been uh, said quite a few times, it's, and it's always been premature. We look at the Soviet Union uh, during the the time just before the fall of the wall, and uh, atheism was the was enforced. I mean, it was coercive atheism, and then religion came back. Then we see in uh, in China, uh, we now have Christianity is the fastest growing religion there. And what tends to happen is uh, you don't you don't always take advantage of things that uh, are easy. And Christianity in the West has been pretty easy. But uh, as we move forward, I think that there's going to be a need. Like right now, uh, we're at the, if you look at rates of depression, um, right now among young people, millennials 18 to 34, highest rates of depression in the history of the West. Now that's interesting because we also see the lowest levels of religion. And one thing that religion is really good at is giving purpose. And so I think that if we can see innovation within the churches, uh, there is a need out there. And, and the, the need is going to be constant because people will always want purpose. They will always want to have that feeling of, of being, I guess, special in God's eyes, for lack of a better word. So uh, I don't think that there's a death knell for religion. It's just if the churches can learn to do something differently. Dr. David Haskell from Wilfrid Laurie University. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk to you about something that I think is very serious, something we need to take very seriously, something that we really should be paying more attention to and cracking down upon in whatever way we can. That is the Drake curse. Have you heard about the Drake curse? I hope you've heard about the Drake curse. The Drake curse is a very serious thing, especially if you are a fan of the Leafs or the Raptors. So what's the Drake curse? Well, the Drake curse says that whatever team Drake, the singer, the rapper, the hip hop artist, whatever team he cheers for automatically loses. And there is now evidence to support that this is true. Whatever team Drake supports, guaranteed loses. Let me give you the examples. Some of the examples. Last week, Drake took some photos with some soccer players from the Paris Saint-Germain soccer team. He was over in Europe for a concert tour. The players posted them on Instagram. Immediately, they lose 5-1, to one, which caused Roma, another soccer team, to say, uh, our players are actually banned now from having their photo taken with Drake. Back in the late winter, at the end of the college football season, Drake decided he was an Alabama football fan, was p- photo photographed with his shirt on, with an Alabama shirt on, lost to Clemson. They were the huge favorites. They'd been the dominant team forever. Drake shows up, they lose. 2015, he's hanging out with Serena Williams. He's a big fan of Serena Williams. He shows up at the U.S. Open to cheer on Serena Williams. 
She was the top-ranked player, the number one seed going into that tournament. She loses to an unranked Italian named Roberta Vinci. Drake decided that he was going to become a fan and a buddy of Conor McGregor, the MMA fighter in the UFC. UFC 236, Conor McGregor is facing Habib Nurmagomedov. I think I said that name right. He's in the corner. He's going in with Conor. Conor McGregor gets his butt handed to him with Drake right there. Drake decides he's a Kentucky basketball fan. Well, Kentucky starts losing. They don't move along very far in the playoffs in the March Madness the last few years. Drake, as you know, is a diehard Raptors fan. He's he's the team's official whatever, spokesmodel. I don't know what his his title is. Uh, How have the Raptors done in the playoffs every single year? And interestingly, he's been on this almost year-long tour internationally, which has kept him away from the games for much of this year. They have their probably their best year ever or one of them. Now he's back. And last night, who is in a private box wearing a Maple Leaf sweater, cheering on the Maple Leaf? Drake. 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 Oh, and the Leafs lose. You knew that. And guess what number he was wearing on the back of his sweater? Six. Guess how many goals the Leafs gave up? Six. I'm telling you, this is all... Drake's fault. The curse of Drake is alive and well and must be stopped. Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment have two teams that are in the playoffs right now. You know this, the Raptors and the Leafs. They need to absolutely tell Drake, you are not permitted in the building at all for the rest of this year. We have two good teams. We have a chance to do some damage here. Drake, you are not permitted to show up. Watch from home if you must. Please don't wear one of our jerseys or our hats. Cheer quietly. Maybe even better, Drake, could you cheer for the Boston Bruins for the next few days just to try and help us wade through this and win? Because whoever you cheer for loses. I'm, I'm, I was skeptical until I saw the full list, and now I am a big believer in the curse of Drake. I think that Drake is the kiss of death for whatever sports team he cheers for. If you see Drake at the next Maple Leafs game tomorrow and he's wearing a Leaf sweater and he's sitting in the private box and you are thinking, oh, you know what? There's a betting house that's still taking action on this game. Bet on the Bruins. Bet everything you own on the Bruins because guaranteed the Bruins will win. If Drake is cheering for the Leafs, let me bring in our buddy Bubba O'Neill. Sir, how are you today? Oh, what is going on with the world? Why are we Leafs Nation? You kind of <laughs> blame the blame the goaltending. Blame no, no, defense, we're blaming blame, Drake. Drake blame, is the cause of it. Even Babcock says it's the most ridiculous thing he's ever heard in his time. What does Babcock know? It's Drake's fault. It's entirely Drake's fault. They should banish all remnants of Drake from the building. <laughs> I mean, what is it, the, the soccer team in, in Portugal? Roma, is, yep. Roma that says you cannot take pictures with with, <laughs> with this individual until at least the end of the season. I, it, like, I'm almost afraid that if I was somebody who was not well and I wanted, I like, had one of those last wish things and I said, I want to meet Drake, that would probably be the end of your life. He would oh. walk in, it would be, he is a kiss of death. He, like, not with music, I don't get it, but his music does well. But man, I think that the... The, the karmic things or whatever are balancing it off because whatever he's getting for his music, it's going the other way with his teams. This, is, this has got to stop. Like, do we all believe in Snuffleupagus? 
or whatever his name is. Say that one again. Snuffleupagus. Oh, you're getting closer. <laughs> I can't even say it. I haven't said the word since I was four. Snuffleupagus. Do we believe in the Loch Ness Monster? I want you to say Snuffleupagus again. Is there King Kong roaming around New York City? No, but there is the curse of Drake. If Here's the thing. If Drake is at the game tomorrow night, and he's wearing the Leaf shirt, and he's in the private box, and he's cheering, and if the Leafs lose tomorrow... Actually, wait a second. Would it be tomorrow? No, it'll be in Boston tomorrow. Yeah. So if he goes down to Boston, and if he's there and they lose... I'm telling you, MLSE should say, thanks, Drake. We love you. We appreciate all you've done. But here's a plane ticket for you to go to Tasmania for the next month. Don't leave the jungle. Just stay hidden away in the rainforest. Can you imagine the uproar? I guess game six will be played in Toronto. If he shows up. And if he's there and they lose the series and they get lose in six. Yeah, his number. Oh, this is, I think, on a day where I guess, you know, this is where, I, you know, we in the media, and, I, and I'm going to have to take part of the blame of this because I represent, you know, today's a day where the team did not speak and uh, they're traveling, and I guess Babcock did his, um, instead of just meeting with the media, he did a, a conference call. So on a day where we can't get to the athletes, this is the kind of news that we're leading newscasts with around the country. It's, and it's, and, it's, and I, I think I saw it on Canada. I see, it's everywhere. It is because it's his fault. <laughs> I, have, I, I have completely bought into this, that this is the fault of Drake. Anyway, uh, here, let me tell you something. Let me ask you, let's move away from Drake just for a moment because that's as much as I've ever talked about Drake in one stretch. Uh, here's a question, a serious question for you. Tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, both the Leafs and Raptors play. On Sunday, the Raptors are at 7, and it looks like the Leafs, th- that time has not been given, but it looks like it's probably also going to be at 7. How is Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, which has eminent and huge power in the sports world, how has it not in some way flexed some kind of muscles to say, either with the NBA or the NHL, guys, listen, come on, we got two teams. Surely we don't have to have them both playing at exactly the same time. Yeah, this this is a big mistake, and and to divide the loyalties and uh, in essence, it is impossible. Even though you know you try to watch both, you can't have a hundred percent focus on on both. No, so it, people will be basically forced to choose and. I don't know. That picture-in-picture picture thing never really works for me. Jurassic, who gets who gets yeah. either Maple Leaf Square or Jurassic Park? Who wins that one? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, whoever's playing there, which, you know. Both. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, actually, no. Well, no, one's at home. No, they're both, both on the road. on the road, right? So I, I, I don't know if they're actually opening up. That would be quite a calabash of people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I, I don't know I, how they don't have the power to do this. Someone, you know, with the, you know, both of those organizations are definitely amongst the top ten in terms of influential, uh, you know, ownership and you know, money's made for the league, you know, marketing, all of that kind of stuff. So um, I, I'm going to blame the NBA on this one, and I generally don't because I feel like their league is generally miles ahead of the NHL in terms of the way they present themselves and. Uh, in terms of the way they market their athletes and that kind of thing. This three days in between games has got to stop. It's, well, it's, just, it's not necessary. I also think the NBA is missing something here because uh, while the Raptors certainly have a young crowd, and that's a good thing, and but young crowds don't always watch on TV because they don't always have cable, they stream stuff. I think that the NBA, by making people choose you are going to lose in those ratings in a big way to the Maple Leafs for this particular head-to-head well, thing. 
I, I don't. I kind of disagree, Scott, a little bit. I think it's in essence what it does right now is the hockey people will watch the hockey product and the basketball people will watch the basketball product. And though that number in basketball has grown immensely, and I might even say over a decade, I'm going to say over just the last five years, and especially this year with the interest in the Raptors growing with the likes of the, the Kawhi Leonard obviously being acquired and the way they've gone for it, that number is is much bigger. But still, the Leafs are a... As much as the Raptors are big across this city, and of course I would say you know, as the only basketball team in the country, it's still a regional team. Uh, whereas the Leafs, there's Leaf fans everywhere. I mean, just notice when the Leafs go to Vancouver or Calgary or, or Edmonton, the building is generally half-filled with Leaf fans. So yep, yep. you're, you're going to get a lot of people watching the Leaf games. But so. you also, revenues in sports largely still, largely still are coming from your TV ratings. And my point is, I think there are a lot of Raptors fans, but many of them are young and they aren't necessarily TV viewers. They will watch the game, they will be passionate, but they may stream it, which doesn't ro- ro- doesn't then show up in the numbers which no. then costs. I, I just, I don't see why, I don't see how you couldn't have figured out a way, flex some muscles, done something to say, look, why could we not have back-to-back people are in their home then, we'll watch six hours of sports. What's wrong no, with that? No, the game should be today. The game, well, the that too. The game should be played today. And that's all there is. That would be that, fine too. And that's what I'm saying. The, to me, the, the, it, this is the three days in between games is the, is the issue. And there's really not a need for it. And I would tell you this, that I've talked to enough players, NBA players, that would that say that this is a kind of a drag for them too. And even though the extra day off does heal the body slightly, they are conditioned enough, especially at this time of the year, to be going every second night. And that that momentum that is gained has become very, very difficult to regain after you know basically two full days off. And, well, and let me throw one more thing in there. Uh, while I get that they want to have their body recover, if NHL players who are banging into each other and blocking slap not, shots can play not. every second day. I'm not I'm not making light of NBA players and the toll it takes on their body, but if NHL players can do it every second night, the NBA well, I, guys can but too. I know, that's the thing, though, Scott. These players they they say it. They want it. They want. Yeah, to play, yeah. Right? But if Most that's the league, talk, talk, you say they want to play. But if that's what the league is saying, if the league is saying, "Hey, look, we we got to give these guys a little extra rest to recover," come on, they, they, no, you can by, do it every second day. By all accounts, the NBA and and I understand this to some extent that what they like to do is that they try to push as many games onto the weekend, right, and not play during the week because they know they get the bigger numbers. These games are being telecast as opposed to the, the NHL product, which gets on, shown on NBC sports channels. These NBA games are shown on the major networks. So these games, I mean, you don't, you can't interrupt the primetime programming. They don't like to do that. These, you know, ABC, ESPN, et cetera, et cetera. They like to have the games played on the weekend where they can do the triple headers. They can get the two games sometimes in two nights uh, that way and stack their lineup that way. So this is where there's least, there's, there's a least amount of games being played, a minimal amount of games, sorry, is what I'm trying to say, during the week. And are you going to tell me, though, that it doesn't matter how many games they have at their disposal, are you going to tell me that the Leafs and the Orlando Magic are getting a primetime game? 
No <laughs> chance. No, not when Golden State's playing, not when Houston with James Harden is playing, not when there are other choices. The Raptors, if the, if the NBA could have the Raptors play at two in the morning, I'm convinced they would. Now, I, w- I understand that. I mean, you, I mean, now you have to think as a, as an ex- a television executive. Yes. Oh, yeah, I get I mean, that. And for the same reason that we complained about the Blue Jays for years, that they would always get the four o'clock afternoon game. I mean, this we all know that as he's talked about the ratings and television generates a, a tremendous amount of you know finances yep. for all leagues. So the fact that you know the ratings and the advertising dollars that are going to be watched by Canadians, it means nothing to them in the United States. hundred percent, hundred percent, and that's my point, though. And is that's that, why they and that's why the the Jays and the Raptors get shoved to that these odd times. Agreed, but if that's the case. Then surely you, if they don't want you in the prime time, but the Maple Leafs are going to play prime time, surely you could have found a way to not have them going head to head, the Leafs and the Raptors. It makes yeah. no sense. It just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, uh, we got a couple more minutes. I want to ask you about this because there's been a lot of stuff going on today, this week, pardon me, this week about the CFL negotiations. It, yeah. I don't understand. I don't, uh, for those who don't know what's going on, Last week, the CFL decided that it was going to postpone or put off negotiations for the new collective bargaining agreement with the Players Association for a couple of weeks. Their contract is going to expire on May the 18th, the players is. And now the players union is saying, don't anybody report to camp. We're sticking together. Some of the top players, Bo Levi Mitchell, the quarterback for Calgary, says, I'm not showing up at camp without a deal. I have no concept of what the CFL is trying to do here. This is not, this, the whole thing stinks. I'm not saying it stinks that they haven't been able to reach a deal. That's negotiations and that, that happens. But to tell them we're working on getting Mexican players here and German players here and this and that, but we don't have time to negotiate with you. That's the part. I don't get that. Yeah, that, there's a, that's a bad taste. I mean, in the fact that they had scheduled meetings and basically from what the quote for, was from, from the, uh, the CFLPA, um, Ramsey, um, basically, you know, expressed to the public that the, I think the line was we have some other priorities to take care of. That's what the league. What could be more priority than having your players under absolutely, contract? Absolutely, and and I have to agree to uh, you know I, I I try not to take sides in these issues, but the players not receiving their off season bonuses, uh, if that's being used as some type of strategy to squeeze the players, I think that's absolutely out of line for the CFL. It's very disappointing to quite honestly hear. Um, as you said, the CBA and collective bargaining agreements are always very difficult within leagues. All leagues, we've seen strikes, we've seen seasons missed in Major League Baseball. Um, we've seen a half a season lost in the National Hockey League to you know what some say was an aborted season, you know with an aborted Stanley Cup playoffs that season. Um, but if you're you know, negotiating and you can't reach a deal. We well, understand that to a degree. That's going to happen, but there's still lots of time to get this done. And why they would not have taken care of this? This is this is not one of the leagues I just previously talked about. This is a league right now that is still trying to continually build a fan base. They're talking about a tenth franchise. This is not the time to be shutting down the league. And I'll tell you this, Scott. Uh, you know, as you know, here at CHCH, our weekend sportscaster is uh, Justin Dunk of Three Down Nation. I know you work with Drew Edwards as well of the same you know publication, and these guys are well informed in what's going on and are you know writing about this all the time. Uh, in 2014, when the negotiations were going on, you had a division between the league and the players, and a division amongst the players. 
I'm getting a sense that there is no division amongst the players this time. And if it is time not to show up to uh, the training camp, and if it even gets that long to missing the opening, the missing uh, the week one or week two of the season, they they sound like they're very very united here. Here's the thing that it looks like, and I don't know if this is the case, but here's here's what it looks like. You've got the AAF, that startup league that was going to be like the NFL's farm league that folded. It's now declared bankruptcy. Looks like that has that their failure has emboldened the CFL because now there's not another option for the players to go to. The leverage is gone. And the second part is the CFL players, so many of them, this is their only football opportunity right now. And they don't have guaranteed contracts. And so, you know what? You don't want to come? Fine. We'll find somebody else. And I think that that's the the way this is being looked at. The players have zero leverage and we are going to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. But it sounds like the players, for now anyway, are not going to back down. Uh, not at all. And, and if there's any thought of, I'll use this word loosely because I don't know of another word to use, if there is any belief amongst the Canadian Football League that scab players will work amongst the viewing public, <laughs> it will not happen. We saw, we saw the German players and Mexican players at the Combine. If those are the guys, if that's what this whole plan was, then we got to go down and find German and Mexican players who will come in and play. Uh, I don't know that it, people may watch for the comic value. I don't know if they're going to watch for the football value. Yeah, I mean, it was bad enough in the National Football League, which attracts you know the best players in the world, um, you know, for the American game. And when that happened, and that in that mess of what you know, I think that was an '83. I mean, that was just uh, just a horrible product. And now from that came a couple of players that actually were pretty good. But other than that, I mean, it was—it's it, just not going to work. So the CFL, the Players Association, they really got to get down because, uh, in the end of the day, Scott, this is a negative uh, thing for the league. And as I said, I, I believe, and I could be wrong here. I know there's been some growth within the league and uh, some, you know, television ratings during the regular season that have been holding steady on 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 its broadcast network. Um, this is a very crucial time for the league right now. It especially is when you're trying to attract that young fan base, like we just talked about. With that's been captured by the NBA. You know, there's already a lot of young people I know that I talk to that that they say they can't watch the CFL. And this is just the, not my words; these are their words. And I know you've probably heard the same because it's not the best. Right. That, I mean, whether whether they, you know, we all know it's a different type of football, and sometimes requires a different type of athlete. But amongst a lot of the young kids out there, they sit there and they're like, "Eh, this this isn't the prime time. You know, I want to see the best in the world." Got to let you go so you can go and uh, have a sacrificial burning of all your DeGrassi Junior High tapes to end the Drake curse. Got to do something. I think what I'm going to actually do is go back and watch my Sesame Street tapes and try and find <laughs> what was that his word again. What was his name? I'm not saying it. <laughs> Well, have a happy Easter while you practice. Next week, we'll see if you've mastered it yet. That's Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Thanks for doing this. Say it again? No, I'm not doing it. (laughs) Have a good weekend. See ya. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.